2: Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, sexual violence, terrorism, and assault that some people may find offensive. This episode also includes discussions of violence against children that might be particularly upsetting to some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13.
1: New Year's Day, 1906, was bitterly cold in the small Russian town of Chernigov. On the snow-covered street leading to the home of the local governor general, a slight 20-year-old woman paced
2: anxiously. On a bridge a short distance away stood the love of her life. She gazed up at him in longing. She knew this was no time to confess her unspoken feelings— Marie Suklov had to keep her mind on the mission. She fingered the bomb in her
1: handbag. It was a homemade device, prone to malfunctioning. Nikolai had one just like it in his overcoat. Between the two of them, surely at least one would explode. When it did, they might both
2: be killed. Marie gazed up at Nikolai on the bridge and thought again about crying out to him, even just the words, I love you, might be enough. If they were to die today, perhaps it would be better to die having spoken those words at least once. But as soon
1: as the governor's carriage came into sight, all thoughts of romance left Marie's mind. Instead, her head was filled with images of the broken bodies of peasants and the cries of terrified children. If she faltered, The governor would be free to go on torturing and oppressing the starving peasants of Chernigov.
2: So, as the carriage approached, Marie gripped the bomb tightly in her right hand. In seconds, she would either be dead or a hero of the Russian Revolution. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals.
1: Hi, I'm Sammy Nye.
2: And I'm Vanessa Richardson.
1: And you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast Original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Female Criminals in the search bar.
2: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
2: This is our second episode on Marie Sucloff, the revolutionary and assassin who sabotaged the government of Tsar Nicholas II, became a terrorist, and attacked Governor Hovostov with a homemade bomb.
1: Last week, we followed Marie Suklov who grew up desperately poor as she became involved in her first revolutionary group at age 12. By age 16, she became a labor organizer and a member of the socialist revolutionist movement. At age 17, she was arrested for possessing components of a printing press and imprisoned near Odessa, Russia.
2: This week, we'll delve into how she escaped exile in Siberia and how she decided to move from organizing strikes into facilitating terrorism and assassinations.
1: Finally, we'll tell you about her last imprisonment, her miraculous second escape, and where she ended up after she left Russia.
2: Before we begin the story, a couple of things to remember— First, most of our information on Marie Sucloff comes from her autobiography. As a revolutionary, Marie's activities were conducted in great secrecy. There's only a very limited objective record to compare her story against.
1: Second, the dates in Marie's writings use the Julian calendar, which was 13 days behind our Gregorian calendar. We've converted the dates throughout this episode to Gregorian which is why, in this story, a New Year's Day assassination falls on January 14th.
2: When we left off, Marie was in prison, where she was confined in February of 1902 at the age of 16. She was determined to escape, but the prison was well guarded, and she was punished if she even dared to speak to another political prisoner.
1: Most of Marie's days in prison were exactly the same. If she was lucky, she got to speak to her cellmate, Mrs. Orloff, a young mother who had been imprisoned with her baby. Marie sometimes exercised in the yard. Occasionally, she might be interrogated, but she would tell the guards nothing. Then she went to bed on the cold cell
2: floor. But on April 19, 1903, everything was different. That was Easter Sunday. As the sun set, 17-year-old Marie began hearing horrible screams from the nearby village of Kishinev. The prison was remote, on the village's outskirts, and yet it seemed as if people were being torn to pieces right next door.
1: Marie felt tears come to her eyes. She didn't know what was happening, but she knew it must be awful. She finally begged a guard to tell her what was going on.
2: He replied simply, the order was given to kill the Jews. Marie's
1: stomach sank. Pogroms, organized genocidal massacres of defenseless Jewish people, were becoming more and more frequent in rural Russia. Now, one was happening just outside the prison's walls. Marie's own people, Russian Jewish peasants, were being killed and sexually assaulted as she listened.
2: Through the night, many Jewish people came to the prison and begged to be admitted for their own safety. A few were allowed in, but the prison soon became full, and people seeking shelter were turned away. From her cell, Marie could hear women and children weeping as they were sent back into the violence outside. The Kishinev pogrom
1: continued for two days and two nights, finally ending on the morning of April 22, 1903, At least 49 Jewish people were murdered, more than 100 women were sexually assaulted, and not a Jewish business in Kishinev was left standing. Eastern Orthodox priests
2: led the mob. This massacre, as a forerunner to the genocidal violence of the Holocaust, has been studied extensively by historians, and yet some uncertainty remains about how it began. Marie seems to have believed that the pogrom was ordered by the Russian government— but it's likelier that it was influenced more by propaganda published by private parties.
1: Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show.
2: Thanks, Sammy. In his 2018 book, Pogrom, Kishinev, and the Tilt of History, Stanford professor of Jewish history Stephen J. Zipperstein blames publisher Pavel Khrushchev for the Kishinev Pogrom, Khrushchevan's newspaper, Bisa Reibetz, routinely called for violence against local Jewish peasants. Just before the Kishinev pogrom, a Christian boy was found dead in a neighboring town, and a piece in Bisa Reibetz accused Jews of killing the child to use his blood in the preparation of matzah for Passover. This claim was obviously totally unfounded. But the paper's previous propaganda had already primed its readers to believe everything negative they heard about Jewish people.
1: The local Jewish peasants were law-abiding people. Despite seeing their neighbors' normal behavior with their own eyes, the other peasants in the area were nevertheless convinced by Bisa Rybitz that their Jewish cohorts were secretly wealthy and dangerous.
2: According to Stanford University professors Johnny Manzaria and Jonathan Brook, propaganda is effective precisely because it exploits universal aspects of human psychology. They write, quote, People exist in a rapidly moving and complex world. In order to deal with it, we need shortcuts. We must very often use our stereotypes, our rules of thumb, to classify things according to a few key features and then to respond without thinking when one or another of these trigger features are present. While this makes people highly susceptible to a propagandist who understands persuasion, In general, it is the most efficient form of behaving, and in other cases, it is simply necessary.
1: Marie Sukloff was herself a propagandist. She had hoped to publish propaganda for the socialist revolutionists with her illegal printing press. But for her crimes, she was jailed before she had actually published a single leaflet. Meanwhile, Pavel Khrushchevon, today seen as the chief architect of the Kishinev Pogrom, was never arrested, nor was his anti-Semitic newspaper shut down.
2: Which made things all the more confusing when, several days after the Kishinev Pogrom, 17-year-old Marie was called in by prison officials for further questioning.
1: To her utter shock, the officials informed her that she was to blame for the Pogrom, They said leaflets inspiring violence against Jews had been printed in the same typeface as the pieces of type she was caught with. Therefore, she must have written the anti-Semitic propaganda as well.
2: Of course, it was impossible for Marie to have been involved in organizing the Kishinev pogrom. First of all, she was Jewish herself. Secondly, she had been in prison for almost 14 months. The leaflets urging violence against Jews were published after she was put behind bars.
1: The prison officials knew Marie couldn't possibly have been involved, but they were very much hoping to pin the pogrom on one of the socialist revolutionists. The growing revolutionary movement was becoming inconvenient for the Tsar, buoyed largely by Jewish peasants' activism. If Jewish villagers believed the Socialist Revolutionist Party supported pogroms, they would turn away from the revolutionary cause.
2: It was never clear to Marie whether the leaflets she was accused of printing even existed. There certainly were anti-Semitic publications circulating in Kishinev, but historians today have traced most of them to known Christian publications, not anonymous pamphlets.
1: Marie was so shocked by the accusations that she couldn't even speak in her own defense for several minutes. The prison officials finally accepted that she would not give them any evidence they could twist to blame her for the pogrom,
2: so they returned her to her cell. Over the next few months, officials dropped the idea of blaming Marie for the pogrom in Kishinev. Instead, they decided to charge her with threatening the life of Tsar Nicholas II.
1: Shortly after her 18th birthday in September, Marie learned that she and her comrades were to be tried in open court for these trumped-up charges.
2: This was quite unusual because political prisoners were usually held in prison indefinitely. Marie suspected that the Minister of the Interior, Mr. Playavia, felt that revolutionaries like her deserved a punishment more severe than imprisonment.
1: On October 28, 1903, Marie was tried along with several other co-defendants who had been her comrades in the Socialist Revolutionist Party. She was defended by lawyers Mr. McClackoff and Mr. Rotner. The lawyers seemed to genuinely adore her, and from the day they met her, sent her daily bouquets of fresh flowers in her cell.
2: Marie faced a sentence of 8 to 12 years of hard labor, She knew from gossip within the prison that the Minister of the Interior, Pleavia, had already ordered her to be found guilty.
1: When she was led into the courtroom, Marie was shocked to see her father seated in the gallery. It was the first time she had seen him in more than two years. She hadn't realized he knew of her arrest and imprisonment, much less her trial.
2: For a moment, she was stabbed with guilt. But before she could think for too long about her poor, elderly father, Marie had to turn her attention to her own defense. She and her co-defendants were charged with establishing a secret printing office and publishing the forbidden social democratic journal, Iskra. Marie, in addition, was charged with having uttered threats against the Tsar's life.
1: Marie's defense was that she was a socialist revolutionist, not a social democrat like the publishers of Iskra. In addition, her lawyers argued that Iskra began publishing before Marie even had access to printing equipment. But these facts did little to help.
2: As Pleavia had ordered, she was convicted on all charges, with the government's strongest evidence being a sentence in one of her letters to her former roommate, Nikolai. Written in Yiddish, a government official translated the sentence to Russian as I shall not rest until I shed the blood of the vampire, which was taken to mean that Marie intended to commit criminal acts against the Tsar. After a
1: passionate closing statement by her attorneys, Marie was sentenced to be deprived of all rights and sent to Siberia for life. Though severe, This sentence reflected a slight leniency by the magistrate as compared to the sentence of 12 years hard labor requested by prosecutors.
2: With the trial over, Marie was returned to her cell to await transport to the coldest inhabited place on Earth.
1: Coming up, Marie plots a great escape.
2: Now back to the story. In July of 1904, 18 year old Marie Suklov began her long journey north to the Siberian wasteland to the small town of Alexandrovska.
1: She was delivered directly to the village chief of police, who was instructed to watch her carefully. Exiles were permitted to work and live in Siberia like ordinary people, for the most part, but they couldn't leave their assigned villages without permission.
2: Due to Marie's frail condition after the long journey, the village women sympathized with her greatly and didn't see her as a threat. They offered her bread, milk, and preserved foods from their own pantries.
1: Most of the local people supported the Tsar, but they felt terribly sorry for Marie, who was barely more than a child. Even the local priest befriended her and asked her to help him sew his daughter's wedding dress.
2: Marie eagerly agreed, grateful for the opportunity to do some useful work for her hosts.
1: She knew every morsel of food they gave her had been put away to provide for their own families through the winter.
2: Sadly, over the next few months, she also became a miserable drunk. There was not much to do in Alexandrovska besides drink the local vodka. The other residents all seemed to be equally depressed by their circumstances and did little besides drown their sorrows.
1: Marie found herself in danger of becoming permanently listless, defeated, and perpetually intoxicated. It was even more monotonous here than in prison. In a
2: 1957 Scientific American article, The Pathology of Boredom, Scientist Woodburn Heron describes the effects of extreme boredom on willing volunteers who were subjected to isolation and sensory deprivation. They were free to leave once they could no longer tolerate the conditions, but each subject received the generous sum of $20, about $200 today, for each day he remained in the study. Heron wrote, quote, Most of the subjects had planned to think about their work, Some intended to review their studies, some to plan term papers, and one thought he would organize a lecture he had to deliver. Nearly all of them later reported that the most striking thing about the experience was that they were unable to think clearly about anything for any length of time.
1: Unlike Heron's volunteers, Marie hadn't signed up to be isolated and bored, but she tried the same coping mechanism— She attempted to think high-minded thoughts about revolution, but eventually, the painful sameness of her daily life ate away at her convictions.
2: That's not unusual. In 2012, Mother Jones editor Michael Mechanic reported that Heron's volunteers suffered wide-ranging cognitive effects so damaging that the study was never repeated. Mechanic writes, quote, A series of cognitive tests showed that the volunteers' mental faculties were, in fact, temporarily impaired. They performed poorly on grade school tasks involving simple arithmetic, word associations, and pattern recognition. They also experienced extreme restlessness, childish emotional responses, and vivid hallucinations.
1: Sadly... The thing that snapped Marie from her stupor was the worst news she had ever read. On January 22nd, 1905, known today as Bloody Sunday, unarmed workers were massacred while marching to deliver a petition to Tsar Nicholas II. Their demands included improved working conditions and moderate government reforms. They marched on the Tsar's palace, while carrying icons of the Tsar and singing patriotic hymns. They were determined to show the Tsar they loved him and their country, but wanted better lives.
2: They were certain that their open display of patriotism would protect them, perhaps even endear them to their government. Instead, the soldiers were ordered to open fire, spraying the demonstrators with bullets in nothing short of a massacre— Hundreds of people were killed on Bloody Sunday, according to modern estimates. The Tsar's government ordered these senseless murders in hopes that they would frighten the Russian people out of any further attempts at revolution. Some
1: days later, news of Bloody Sunday reached Siberia. Marie read the newspaper aloud to the locals. They were all shocked and
2: horrified. The terrible news reinvigorated Marie's burning desire for revolution. She confided in a few of her local friends that she intended to escape and return to the revolutionary effort. To her surprise, they offered to help.
1: On February 14, 1905, 19-year-old Marie received permission from the village chief of police to travel for a few days to the nearby town of Kansk. This permission was given only after extensive questioning, during which some of the villagers, including the town scribe, vouched for Marie. Exiles were permitted to travel within Siberia with the written permission of their local police chief. However, any attempt to re-enter European Russia would be punished severely.
2: Marie knew some of her old comrades from prison were in Konsk. She hoped they could help her to obtain money and a passport. Unfortunately, upon arriving, she found that the political prisoners who were sent to Kansk were far too poor to help her.
1: Marie was forced to go on by train to Irkutsk, where she met an old exiled revolutionary. He forged her a Russian passport and gave her new clothes and a wristwatch to help disguise her exile status.
2: On February 24, 1905, Marie returned to her village of Alexandrovska. It might have been easier to escape without returning home first, but if she had disappeared on her permitted trip, the friends who had vouched for her would face severe consequences.
1: But she didn't stay long. On February 26, 1905, Marie set out on foot. She headed for Rybinska, another village about a day's journey away, where she hoped to meet the Orlovs, her old friends from prison. The Orlovs hadn't tried to escape Siberia for fear of being caught with their young son, who was now not quite three.
2: After some discussion, Marie agreed to take the child with her while his parents escaped separately. She promised to take the child to his grandparents in Vilna, near her own hometown. This plan would help to protect both parties. The authorities would be looking for Marie alone and the parents with a toddler.
1: On February 27, 1905, Marie and the small boy began their escape. They set out in a hired sleigh, while Marie prayed fervently for the child to survive the journey. In the Siberian winter, this wasn't a certainty. Even in his warmest clothes, the boy was already shivering on her lap.
2: As the sleigh flew over the frozen tundra, Marie bundled the boy into her overcoat, sharing her body heat with him. She had made a promise to deliver him safely, and she intended to keep it, no matter what. In a moment, Marie's escape attempt requires a leap of faith. Now back to the story.
1: In February of 1905, Marie Sukloff, age 19, set out with her friend's three-year-old son for a daring escape from remote Siberia. She knew the secret police were looking for her, and she hoped she could flee by pretending to be a grieving widow traveling with her child.
2: There were several close calls with a gendarme, but each time, the presence of the child saved Marie. The village chief of police had reported the escape of a woman traveling alone, and the authorities had no reason to suspect what seemed to be a young mother. Thanks to Marie's new clothing and wristwatch from the exiled man in Irkutsk, she looked nothing like she had in her convict's uniform.
1: On March 18, 1905, Marie successfully disembarked from the train in Vilna and delivered the child to his grandparents. She then decided to visit her own parents in nearby Baravoy-Meline, though she knew it would put them
2: at mortal risk. When she arrived, her parents wept and embraced her. They begged her to take all the money they had and go abroad, to live out her days in safety.
1: Instead, Marie told them that she intended not just to continue rebelling against the government— but to kill those agents of tyranny who had murdered the workers on Bloody Sunday.
2: Her parents were horrified, but despite their pleading, Marie left the next morning.
1: On March 19, 1905, she boarded a train for Minsk, the first leg of her journey to Austria where she planned to reunite with fellow revolutionaries and join an extremist faction in the village of Geneva.
2: There she was reunited with comrade Nikolai, one of her first roommates in Odessa, who had been forced to serve in the Russian military and later exiled to Siberia. He, too, had escaped, and he, too, wished to become an assassin.
1: Marie had always liked Nikolai, but they were children when they first met spending most of their time discussing philosophy, sharing meager meals, and organizing small labor strikes together. Now, they were both hardened, bitter warriors, determined to bring about revolution at any cost.
2: As Nikolai described his own daring escape from Siberia, Marie began seeing him in a new light. She felt her heart skip a few beats when he smiled at her.
1: But there was no time to explore these new feelings, Both Marie and Nikolai wanted to join a terrorist sect of the Socialist Revolutionists and train as assassins. This pursuit would leave no time for romance.
2: Although Marie's anger at her oppressive government is understandable, revolutionary terrorist groups like hers were ultimately ineffective in bringing about social change. A 2006 study published in the journal International Security found that terrorist groups don't tend to reach their goals. In fact, according to the study's author, Max Abrams, terrorist groups that operate with policy goals, or the wish to install political policy in line with their own dogma, succeed an abysmal 7% of the time.
1: Looking back... We now know that Russia's monarchy was abolished only after a second revolutionary movement, which began with mass strikes. Perhaps Marie would have been more effective if she'd returned to her earlier work as a labor organizer. Instead, she chose to become exactly what she most hated—someone who felt entitled to take other people's lives. Although we would be remiss if we didn't draw one distinction. Marie sought to take only the lives of those who had planned the genocide of her people. Those who carried out the pogroms were never punished by the government, so Marie and her cohorts likely felt they had no other recourse but violence.
2: Nevertheless, the leaders of the local revolutionary organization tried mightily to dissuade 19-year-old Marie from choosing a path that would likely leave her dead. But she held firm and soon began her training.
1: Her first orders were to cut off all contact with her friends and family. Just receiving a letter from a sworn terrorist would mean their exile or execution.
2: Her next orders were to kill General Triopov. It was he who issued the famous order to the local garrison not to spare cartridges on Bloody Sunday.
1: While attempting to carry out this first mission, Marie lived in isolation in a small village, staring at General Triopov's photo and waiting for word on when she should make her attempt.
2: But in April of 1905, after a month of total isolation, Marie received news that the bloodthirsty general had taken extraordinary measures to assure his safety. He no longer left his house and talked to no one. Getting to him was no task for a first-time assassin. Marie was pulled off the
1: case in favor of a target deemed more vulnerable, Governor-General Klegelis of Kiev, who cruelly persecuted the Jewish people under his domain and crushed all attempts at resistance. Marie and Nikolai were both assigned to the case. They posed as street merchants. Nikolai opening a general peddler's stand, and Marie posing as a flower girl.
2: For three weeks, Governor-General Klegelis did not leave his house. When he finally did appear, it was in the company of his wife and son.
1: The revolutionary group forbade the killing of innocent women and children, so it was impossible to attack him with a suicide bomb when he stayed close to his family. Marie and Nikolai finally gave up on their second mission, three weeks of surveillance wasted.
2: Throughout the summer of 1905, their comrades across Russia succeeded in their tasks, including the assassination of Grand Duke Sergei, then governor general of Moscow. There were also numerous railroad strikes, making it impossible for the empire of Russia to conduct business as usual.
1: Inspired by the railway workers, workers of all kinds began striking although 20-year-old marie had been unable to complete her own deadly mission she was enthusiastic to see her countrymen finally revolting
2: the pressure worked on october 30th 1905 tsar nicholas ii issued a manifesto stating that russia would have a constitution It was a huge victory for revolutionaries who hoped this would bring about reform and improve the horrific conditions in which they starved, froze, and grew deathly ill. The Constitution would install a parliament, giving peasants a voice in their own government.
1: This change wasn't without its negative aspects, however. Many in the upper class believed that this would consolidate their power and rob them of their lands. In response, riots broke out. On October 31, 1905, the Black Hundreds, a group of petty criminals and disguised secret police, took over Kiev and engaged in a crime spree. These ultra-Orthodox, far-right Russian nationalists were angry about the loss of wealth that landowners would face under the new Constitution and the empowerment that would be gained by Jewish people.
2: Marie joined a local self-defense league and, wielding a revolver, did her part to fight off the mob. Some of the police and Russian government officials stood alongside her, trying to subdue the criminals, but others joined the mob instead.
1: Marie and her comrades were fighting a losing battle. After a couple of days, she decided to decamp. She traveled to Chernigov, where she was told the local revolution was in need Of propagandists.
2: After arriving in late October, Marie met an elderly peasant who relayed a story of horrific brutality ordered by the local governor, Hovostov. After the Tsar's manifesto was announced, some starving peasants in Chernigov had understood the proclamation to mean that food would be fairly divided among the population, as revolutionaries had demanded.
1: In response to the order, they went en masse to confront a wealthy landowner whose silos contained enough grain to feed all of them. When the landowner refused to speak to them or even come out of his home, the peasants broke the lock on his silo. They divided the grain evenly amongst themselves, leaving an equal share for the landowner
2: and went home. That same evening, the peasants were confronted by a group of armed soldiers, led by a government official. When they refused to return the grain, citing the Tsar's manifesto, the official ordered his men to beat and shoot the starving farmers.
1: After killing eight men, the soldiers proceeded to the peasants' homes, where they beat and sexually assaulted the women and girls of the village, Upon hearing this story, Marie felt a sudden jolt of purpose. The next morning, she asked the leaders of her terrorist faction for permission to assassinate Governor Hovostov.
2: The very same day, she received word back saying, quote, "...the committee deems the assassination of Governor Hovostov necessary at this moment." as a response to all the atrocities he has committed in the villages. It has also become known to the committee that the governor is trying to organize a Jewish pogrom in the city of Chernigov. In consideration of all this, the committee accepts your proposal and authorizes you to make the attempt.
1: After receiving the green light, as well as some money from the revolutionaries for expenses, Marie immediately began making preparations. She summoned her comrade, Nikolai, to join her and assist in the mission.
2: Marie and Nikolai rented the third house down from Governor Havostov. Marie took on the guise of a Polish schoolteacher awaiting the arrival of her mother and sister from Warsaw.
1: Through November and December, the pair worked together to study Governor Havostov's routines and habits. From her window, Marie learned his mealtimes, bedtime, and when he walked in the garden. She also made or purchased bombs for herself and
2: Nikolai. In late December, Marie and Nikolai received word that Governor Havostov would leave his home by carriage on New Year's Day to attend an event at the nobleman's assembly. They vowed to assassinate him as he returned home. After a long evening of revelry, he would be intoxicated and careless.
1: The night before the assassination, Marie wrote a letter to her loved ones, assuming she wouldn't survive the bombing. She readied the bomb, placed it in a handbag bought specially for the occasion, and left rent money on her table for the landlord.
2: After doing everything she could to prepare, Marie managed to get some sleep.
1: The next morning was bone-chilling, despite the sun. Marie paced on the road outside her home, a bomb in her purse. Across the bridge, she saw Nikolai coming toward her. He held a package, wrapped with a bright red ribbon. She knew that was his bomb.
2: He walked towards Marie, then passed her. As he did, he whispered, Goodbye, and went to take his position on the bridge.
1: Marie knew they would likely die from the bomb blast, a small price to pay for Russia's freedom.
2: An ornate carriage came into view. As it made its way towards Nikolai, he threw the bomb under the carriage. Marie braced herself for an explosion that never came. The bomb failed to detonate. A
1: police officer who had been riding behind the governor's carriage charged at Nikolai and fired a single shot. The carriage began to pick up speed as the driver urged the horses into a gallop.
2: Marie saw Nikolai fall into the snow, just as she threw her own bomb at the carriage.
1: A sonic wave lifted her from her feet and threw her into the snow. Blood was streaming down her hands and face. She slipped in and out of consciousness as debris fell around her. Finally, she passed out.
2: Passers-by saw Marie lying bloodied in the snow and carried her to a private hospital. When she awakened there, she left immediately. She preferred to die rather than put everyone in the hospital at risk of punishment if the police found out they were treating a terrorist.
1: After walking for some distance, Marie fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. A young Jewish man found her and, seeing the blood on her face, asked, Are you the one that threw a bomb at the governor? She admitted it.
2: The young man carried Marie to his home, grateful for her assassination of the governor whose planned pogrom might have killed his entire family. His parents successfully hid Marie through the night— though she was delirious from blood loss and passed in and out of consciousness. The
1: next day, the young man drove Marie in his sleigh to nearby Gorodnia. When they arrived, he attempted to put Marie on a train, thinking he could send her somewhere the authorities wouldn't be looking for her. Unfortunately, police and soldiers were already closely monitoring the station.
2: Marie was recognized immediately, Her injuries were impossible to hide. She and the young man were arrested and returned to Chernigov, where they were imprisoned. They soon learned that Nikolai, too, had survived the bombing, but was also in prison, awaiting trial.
1: For the last two weeks of January, 1906, 20-year-old Marie was regularly tortured and interrogated. She refused to offer any information, even her name, The authorities were forced to schedule her trial under the name Unknown.
2: Her trial in military court began on January 30th, 1906. It was to be a joint trial along with Nikolai and the young man who tried to help Marie escape. It was a packed courtroom, but the only people there to bear witness for the prisoners were the young man's elderly parents.
1: The trial lasted only half an hour. After the defendants were all pronounced guilty, they were given the opportunity to say any last words to the magistrate.
2: Both Marie and Nikolai decided to use their statements to beg the judge for clemency for the young man. Marie said, I swear to you, by my sacred belief that Russia will be free, that this boy is innocent.
1: The magistrate's face gave no indication of whether or not he believed her.
2: At the stroke of midnight, Marie, in her cell, received word that the judge had decided on a sentence. She was led back into the darkened courtroom. The magistrate sentenced both Nikolai and Marie to death by hanging. This was expected. Marie felt no disappointment. She hoped only that the young boy would receive better news.
1: Finally, the judge spoke again, sentencing the young boy to 10 years hard labor. Although this was a terribly harsh sentence for his menial crime, Marie assured the youth that the revolution would triumph within a few months and that he would be freed from the labor camp as soon as Russia was free.
2: She was sorry that she'd missed the chance to live in that new world. In fact, she expected to be executed within 24 hours. But as the day passed and turned into night, no guard came to take her to the gallows. She stayed there for the next week, each morning ready for her execution. Each day, it failed to come. On the day
1: of February 8th, she heard a coded knock on the wall. Someone was using tap code, a slow method of passing secret messages in prison by knocking rhythmically to signify each letter. Marie's heart leapt, realizing her neighbor was a fellow revolutionary. She knocked back, saying, Who are you?
2: The other prisoner's knock came immediately in response. It was Nikolai. He was still alive. With death so near, the two young
1: revolutionaries shared their long-buried feelings, beginning with Nikolai's tentative message, I don't want you to die. Marie knew this was his way of confessing his love. She responded in kind.
2: For hours, they tapped to each other, reiterating their deep love for one another over and over, both agreed that Nikolai's arrival in the adjoining cell must mean they would both be executed the next day. They would never have the chance to express their feelings in spoken words. They would never kiss, never hold each other, never again look into one another's eyes, except perhaps for a final moment as they stood perched on the edge of the gallows.
1: At last, neither of them could stay awake anymore, They both collapsed from exhaustion on opposite sides of the cell wall, dreaming of one another.
2: In the wee hours of the morning, Marie woke to the sound of Nikolai's cell door opening. She heard footsteps fade away down the long prison corridor and knew that Nikolai was being led away. So they were not to be executed together, after all— Marie cried out to him, though she knew he could not hear, Farewell, my beloved. Farewell, my dear.
1: In the silence of the night, she strained to hear what was going on outside. She thought she could hear hammers, the final touches being placed on the gallows. Then, after some time, she suddenly felt that Nikolai was dead.
2: Although it was impossible, through the thick walls... It seemed to Marie as if she could even hear his last breath leave his body.
1: At 10 in the morning on February 9th, 1906, a senior government official came to rouse Marie. Without Nikolai, she was now eager to be hanged. She leapt to her feet, holding her wrists out to be handcuffed.
2: But instead of leading Marie to her execution, the high official simply said, I have brought you imperial clemency. Your life has been granted to you.
1: Maria knew she should be glad the Tsar had spared her life. But after Nikolai's execution, she felt there was nothing to live for, especially because she hadn't been pardoned. Her sentence was merely commuted to penal servitude for life in Siberia.
2: 20-year-old Marie was placed in handcuffs and leg irons and loaded onto a train headed for the penal colony.
1: On the train, she realized why she must have been spared from the gallows. Word of her crime had spread across Russia, and with it had gone stories of Governor Havostov's brutality. Even the soldiers who guarded her on the train sympathized with Marie— They were conscripts from working-class families. They knew what it felt like to be powerless and poor. They even took off her handcuffs, an act that could have landed them in prison.
2: Upon arriving in Moscow in early February, Marie was placed in a crowded cell in a forwarding prison. As Marie waited to be sent on to Siberia, people openly approached the prison and shouted encouragement to the prisoners.
1: By now, the revolution was so well underway across Russia that people no longer feared showing their support. It was hard enough for the government to punish those who actually committed acts of terrorism. There weren't enough prison cells to fit all the people who simply read a prohibited pamphlet.
2: Marie remained in the forwarding prison until early July 1906, when she was finally sent on to her final destination, Agadoui Prison the Siberian peasants turned out in full force to show their support for the convicts on the train. At one point, a
1: mob even seized the train car transporting the prisoners and attempted to free them. Marie and her fellow convicts were afraid this would lead to a massacre and went out onto the train platform to beg the crowd to back away.
2: When Marie arrived at the prison, she was surprised to be given books, ordinary clothing rather than a convict's uniform, and plenty of outdoor exercise.
1: But as the summer faded into fall and fall into winter, the revolution lost ground across Russia. The government's tyranny once again worsened, and this trend even reached Agadoui Prison. By the end of the year, Marie's books were seized, and she was again treated cruelly by her guards.
2: It was then that she began to plot her next escape.
1: There was a loose board on the bottom of the exercise yard gate. At a moment when there were no guards in the yard,
2: she removed the board and crawled away. This escape began a whirlwind of hiding in Comrade's homes, resting her aching body for a few days, and being forced to move once the gendarme got too close. At
1: one point, she stayed in the filthy home of a drunken, unemployed engineer, but had to leave after he attempted to sexually assault her. After that, she begged the engineer's young son for help.
2: The boy returned with not just an ordinary soldier, but a colonel. The career soldier respected Marie greatly for her bravery and courage, even though he was a supporter of the Tsar's government.
1: The admiring Colonel made arrangements for Marie to flee Russia. She would travel to Manchuria, then on to China. Towards the end of 1911, Marie arrived in China, then soon sailed for Europe, where she would finally be able to live under her own
2: name. After that, she traveled to the United States. By 1914, when she was 29, she was giving interviews to U.S. publications, urging Americans to do more to support the struggle of the Russian people for freedom.
1: In October of 1914, The Century Company, a New York publisher, released Marie's autobiography, She also apparently spoke at some meetings of intellectuals in New York, urging them to render support to Russia's political prisoners.
2: After this, Marie disappears from the historical record. We don't know when she died or if she has any heirs. It's possible she was eventually found by Russian secret agents living in the United States and killed. She may even have returned to Russia to carry on the fight.
1: Or perhaps she changed her name and elected to live out her remaining years in peace.
2: Whatever the case may be, her two escapes from Siberia certainly make her one of the most adept, adventurous, toughest, and bravest women of the Russian Revolution. Certainly, she was a terrorist. Yet with the governor planning a pogrom, Marie's assassination by bomb might have saved hundreds of lives. Marie's
1: actions were taken against a socio-political backdrop so complex and painful it defies moral judgment through a modern lens. Perhaps we should remember her as neither criminal nor hero, but simply as an imperfect human born into unimaginable circumstances who refused to turn away from the suffering of others. This completes our coverage of the story of Marie Sukloff. One final note. Because of the scant documentation of Marie's life, some sources refer to her as Marnia Shkolnik or Maria Shkolnik, and some identify the governor general she attempted to assassinate as Fyodor Dubasov. For this episode, we've chosen the names that are most widely used.
2: Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode.
1: You can find more episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Female Criminals
2: in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Edmire and Freddie Beckley. Female Criminals is written by Yelena War and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.